sense. And that's what this book is all about. Let's begin by talking about attraction and courtship for a minute. And this is chapter 1, verses 1 and following. Listen, all too often, single believers make the mistake of asking the wrong question. You say, what's the wrong question? The wrong question is, is this the right person to marry? They, they, they're, move, they're going along in their life. They meet somebody that they're attracted to, they're interested in, what have you, and they begin to ask this question, is this the right person to marry? And then maybe that doesn't pan out, and then they come along, they meet somebody else they're interested in, they start asking the question, is this the right person to marry? And you find yourself constantly going from one flower to the next flower like a bee. You know, is this the right person? Is this the right person? Is this the right? That's the wrong question. That's getting the cart before the horse. You see, the right question, the question that we should be asking, rather, is, is this the right type of person? To marry. You say, what's the difference? Well, the difference is if you determine whether someone is uh, someone that you find yourself attracted to is not the right type of person to marry, then you can accomplish two critically important things. One, you narrow the field significantly. Because you get out there and you start hanging out with somebody and you say, this is not the right type person to marry, you don't want to waste your time and effort on a relationship that you know is going to fail. Secondly, what it does is it eliminates the potential for great disappointment and hurt in a future relationship. Ladies, let me tell you something. Some men were never meant to be married. You see, before a man can be a godly leader in his home, he must first learn to be a heartfelt follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. If he is not, generally, he will exhibit one of two behaviors as a self-centered, sinful man. He will either be an irresponsible leader, a boy living in a man's body, or he will be abusive, an insecure bully living in a man's body. We see it happen all the time. In most cases in marriage, men need to grow up. They need to become leaders. They need to take on responsibility. They can't just play like a little boy all the time. And it's very important for you to understand that. In the very first few verses, we see what attracted the Shulamite woman to Solomon most. Now, verse 2, verse 1 just simply introduces the Song of Solomon, which is Solomon's, all right? Verse 2, he says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Whoa. It says, For your love is better than wine. Now, here the woman is reflecting on the fact that Solomon's love is the sweetest thing on earth. Why? Well, she tells us, and verse 3, verse 3 says, Your oils have a ple pleasing fragrance. This was simply an ancient way of saying uh, that she was physically attracted to him. Okay? All right. And then uh, the next part of verse 3 says, Your name is like purified oil. What does that mean? Well, here she is referring to his character, his reputation, his name 
was that of a godly man. In other words, she was praising his relationship with God. Now, it's very important that you understand this at this point. The biblical priority is first the man gets God, then the man gets a woman. That's the biblical priority. As you know, there are three great decisions in life. When Gail and I worked with singles in our church, we, we really hammered this uh, away with them at, at the beginning. But there are three great decisions in life. The first great decision in life is who's your master going to be? Who are you going to follow in your life? That decision impacts every other decision, every other choice that you make. Who's your master going to be? Are you going to try to be the master of your own destiny? That's a fool's game. It's not possible. Or are you going to let the Lord Jesus Christ be the master of your life? You're going to follow him. You're going to seek his direction, his guidance in your life. Or you're going to try to do it all on your own. The second great decision is not who you will you marry. The second great decision is what is your mission in life? What is God calling you to? What, does he, what has he set you apart for in his kingdom? What is the reason you, for your existence? Why does, has God uniquely gifted you and, and put you together in the way that he has? What does he want you to do with your life? What is your mission in life? You say, why is that the second great decision? Because if you don't know what the mission of your life is, you don't know the direction of your life, how do you know if someone can help you get there? Or if you're heading in the same direction or not? vitally important and then the third great decision who will your mate be who will you marry if you get the first two right chances are the third one will fall right into place as God leads you and then also in verse three she says therefore the maidens love you and what she's saying here simply is that as a godly man who had his priorities right he was uh, popular among the ladies now, we've got a son, his name's Peter, and he's a godly man. He loves Jesus. And, and, you know, you know what? He's always got girls around him. He always does. I mean, no matter where he goes, he, he knows the, these, these girls, just, they just flock a, around him. And he's, he's not trying, seeking relationships or anything like that. He's seeking to be a godly man. And, 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 uh, and they follow him. Verse 4 says, draw me after you and let us run together. Because this man and woman had so much in common and had put their relationship with God first, it was a true delight for them to be together. Did you know what? It's important in a marriage or in a dating relationship that you like one another that you enjoy one another, that you have fun together, that you get along, and it's, it's a joy to be, a delight to be together. If it's not, there's something wrong. Probably one or the other or both are not really walking after God and seeking Him with all their heart. And she says in verse 5, I am black but lovely. Here she is referring to the fact that her skin was dark from working in the sun. In that culture, to have a more pale color was generally considered more attractive. And the Shulamite woman was apparently sensitive about this issue. We'll see here in just a minute. Verse 6, do not look upon me because I am dark, 
For the sun has burned me. My, father, my mother's sons or her brothers were angry with me. And you say, well, why were they angry with her? Well, if we have time at the end, we'll, we'll address that. They weren't really angry, but she thought at the time that, that they were angry with her. They made me caretakers of the vineyard. Basically, what they were trying to do is they were trying to teach her how to be a hard worker. And she didn't understand that as a young person growing up. <clears throat> and she, it says... But I have not taken care of my own vineyard, talking about her own body. She's been out there working hard and what have you, she, to her own detriment. So first we see this was a submissive gal. This talks about her character. She was a submissive gal. She was submissive to the authorities that were in her life. She went out and she did the work that she was told to do, and she did it well. And secondly, she was a, a hard worker. She knew what it meant to serve others, even to her own detriment. You know, unfortunately, a lot of young couples today, they don't know how to work hard. They don't know how to provide for themselves. They don't know how to take care of others. They don't know how to serve others because they've always been given to and served themselves. They don't know how to serve others. And I tell you what, that is going to cause some problems within a marriage because marriage is all about service between a man and a woman. The man serves the wife, the wife serves her husband. When I first met my wife, Gail, there were several things that stood out to her about me, uh, stood out to me about her. Let me get that correct, all right? I find my wife physically attractive. I always have. Uh, But it wasn't her physical appearance that first drew me to her. You know, before our first date, we'd spent the total of about 15 minutes together. And uh, because I didn't really know her, what I did is I went and I talked to some people that I trusted who knew her and inquired about her to find out what kind of a person she really was. And she had a great reputation as a godly woman and a woman of character. Uh, on our first date, I discovered several things about her. She was a humble person. Everything wasn't all about her. Uh, she, uh, she didn't have to be the center focus of attention. We went to a basketball game, a high school basketball game on our first day. You say, that's really romantic. I wasn't trying to be romantic. I was just trying to get to know her. And uh, it, I was working in student ministry at the time, and a lot of our kids went to both of these schools, and they were playing this game. And so I went there to see them, but I took her along with me. And the fact of the matter is, I spent half the time that we spent together, I spent on the floor talking to the kids and only about half the time talking to my wife. And you think, you were, that was a terrible, terrible date. You're right, it was. For her, I think, you know, I mean, I, I, after, after I was going home that, later that night, I thought, that was terrible. You, you spent all this time with these kids and not with your date, you know. But the thing that impressed me was she was not the bit, a bit put off by that. She wasn't offended. She wasn't hurt. She didn't feel like she had to be the center of my attention. She got me, and she understood why I was there and what I was doing. And she was fine. She was comfortable enough in her own skin. She could be with me or without me. She could ha- hang out with the people around her and what have you. And, it, it, and I thought, wow, this gal is something. Uh, she was respectful of the authorities in her life. She was a hard worker. She had worked and paid her way, not only through college, but also through physical therapy school. She had done that on her own with no help 
really from her family, they weren't able to help her. She was a hard worker, and she possessed a genuine love relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. She loved Jesus. She was what the old-timers would say was a keeper. And after 34 years of marriage, she still is a keeper. And verse 7 says, Tell me, O you whom my soul loves, where do you pasture your flock? Where do you make it lie down at noon? For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? When it's talking about here is at noon, it's talking about being out in the open. She lived her life out in the open as in the noonday. She was a virtuous woman. She had refused to compromise herself. She was not like those who veiled themselves, like the prostitutes who came out at twilight. Are you getting the picture? This gal was a godly woman. She was beautiful both on the outside and on the inside. Now let me say a word about a person's appearance to you. First of all, looks can deceive. Yes, looks can deceive. It's an illusion. It says in Proverbs 31, 30, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. Now that's not just true about women, that's true about men too. You know, that hunky guy, that guy that looks like, you know, Zeus, you know, out there you know, uh, on the beach or whatever and what have you. I mean, that can be real deceiving too, right? A, a second thing about looks, looks will decline. They will. I, I've got a couple pictures I want to show you. The first picture was taken last week at the beach. This is my wife and Gail and myself, and we're posing for a picture. That, that's, you, you see what you get there, right? Everybody see that okay? The second picture is one that was taken 34 years ago at our wedding. Can you tell the difference? <laughs> Can you? You know, when we uh, are singles, when they would come over to our house, they liked looking through our wedding pictures and stuff, and they always said, I, remember, I resembled a Ken doll to them. You know, back in those days. I, I shudder to think what I resemble today. I'm not going to ask that question at all. Looks do decline. Listen, on your wedding day, that is probably going to be the best you ever have looked in all your life at any moment. And it's all downhill from there, baby. And I'm talking physically. I'm talking physically, all right? I'm not talking about the marriage. I'm talking physically speaking it's all downhill from there. Let me tell you something else about looks or appearances. Looks can be canceled out by character. Some of the best looking people in the world are some of the biggest jerks you've ever seen. And I tell you what, you might be attracted at first by their looks, but you spend a little bit of time with them and those looks are going to go... Uh, it says in Proverbs eleven twenty two, as a ring of gold in a swine's snout is a lovely woman who lacks discretion. And that's true about men too, right? Here's some words of wisdom to you if you're single here this morning. Develop the right profile. Decide what is the right type of person that you want to marry. Have a very clear picture of that. And then when you meet somebody, you know, stack it up. And if they don't stack up, don't waste your time. Secondly, hold out and be patient. Wait on the Lord. He has something very good and very great for you if you'll just wait on Him. Thirdly, go to the places where the great people go. 
I mean, if you're hanging out at the bars and the clubs and stuff like that, you know what you're going to get? You're going to get the people who are all stuck on themselves. That's what you're going to get. Go to the places where the great people go. Go to the places where people who love Jesus go. Hang out with them. And fourthly, become the type of person you are looking for. It's one thing, you know, sometimes we have a double standard. We, we have this idea of what the perfect wife or the perfect husband would look like, but we're not thinking about how do I become that type of person for her or for him. All right? Now look at how the man treats the woman. Verse 9 uh, and following, it says, First of all, with gentleness. It says, To me, my darling, you are like my mare among the chariots of Pharaoh. Now, men, before you compare your wife with a horse, you need to understand the context of what he's saying here. And basically what he's talking about is this mare is most esteemed above all else and therefore treated very, very well. He treats her with edification, verses 12 through 14. My beloved is to me a pouch of myrrh which lies all night between my breasts. My beloved to me is a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyard of Engedi. Women in those days, they, the women wore a pouch around their neck and it was filled with spices and fragrant blossoms and it acted like a perfume. And what she is saying is that her love was like perfume to her. He makes her sweet. He's better than she naturally is. Is that not true about our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? When you spend time with Jesus and you grow in his word and understanding what have you, he makes you better. To be around him makes you better. And to be around this man made her a better person. He treated her with propriety. She says, how handsome, verse 16, how handsome you are, my beloved, and so pleasant. Indeed, our couch is luxuriant green. The beams of our houses are cedar, our rafters, cypresses. She said, what is she talking about here? She's talking about this. When they came together before marriage, it was always out in the open. It was not in some dark, private place where temptation could take over. She treat, he treated her with esteem. Chapter 2, verse 1, I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley. You know, before she was saying, don't look at me because I am dark. Now she's saying, I am the rose of Sharon. I am the lily of the valley. She's saying, I am beautiful. Why? Because he makes her feel beautiful. He elevates her. And this is how Christ makes us feel. He elevates us. He treated her with trust. Verse 2 in chapter 2. Like a lily among thorns, so is my darling among the maidens. He only has eyes for her and does not play the field. He treated her with protection. In verse 3, in his shade, I took great delight and sat down. You know, she was not some uh, girl dragging some deadbeat guy around with her to church. Rather, he took responsibility for her welfare he took the lead in their relationship i have a great illustration but i don't have time to tell it to you i'm sorry no <laughs> listen uh i i've i've met some of these deadbeat guys and how they use and abuse these gals and girls you just don't want to go there don't waste your time on them 
they, they will bring you down. You want someone who will lift you up. He treats her with protection, verse 3. In his shade, I took great... Oh, I've already said that, in With provision, verse 3, also. In his, his fruit was sweet to the taste. He took care of her needs and fed her both physically and spiritually. And he treated her with honor, verse 4. He has brought me to his banquet hall, and his banner over me is love. Now, y'all, the banquet hall was a public place. And the banner is a military term, meaning banner of victory. This man uh, adored her and, 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 and honored her in public by placing this banner of love over her. Did you know Jesus is our banner of love? Did you know that? Uh, one of his names is Jehovah Nisi, our banner of victory. And like over in Psalm 23, where he talks about uh, he... he uh, he sets a table before me in the presence of my enemy uh, and what have you. He is our banner of love that is over us as well. And he treated her with self-control in verses 5 through 7. It says, sustain me with raisin cakes, which, by the way, was an aphrodisiac, okay? Refresh me with apples, for I am lovesick. Let his left hand be under my head, and his right hand embrace me. This woman wants this man in the worst kind of way, is what she's saying. You see, you have to go on, though, what she says next. She says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you do not arouse or waken my love until she pleases. In other words, until the time is right. She wants him. But she knows that there is an appropriate time and place for that. Now, <clears throat> engagement can be a very difficult time in the life of any couple. You've openly declared your love for one another. You have, you've declared your intentions to be married. Yet the time is still not right to consummate that relationship. Sometimes young people make false assumptions and they say, well, we're going to get married anyway, right? Listen. My grandmother was engaged to a man. They were just a few weeks away from their marriage. He was changing his tire on the side of a road and was hit by a car and killed. She could have made the assumption, we're going to get married anyway. But you never know what a day may bring in your life. And she could have given herself away unnecessarily. Why does God give this prohibition until marriage? It's for our protection. For our protection. We are not to share the pieces of our hearts with many, only to give the leftovers to the one true love that God has for us. You want to wait. How often do we commit spiritual adultery with the things of this world and give God the leftovers? Now, we're going to talk about conflict for a minute. Move over to chapter 5, verse 2. And uh, I want you to see the conflict that they experience. Chapter 5, verse 2 says, I sleep, but my heart is awake. And it says, my heart, is, she's talking about Solomon. Solomon is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. What do you think is going on here? 
I think you can probably figure it out, okay? He's coming. He's wanting her. And he's asking for her to open up her door. And uh, she's, look at verse 3, her response. I have taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I've washed my feet. How can I defile them, make them dirty again? Uh, this was a Hebrew way of saying, I've got a headache. Okay? All right? And then see his, his response. It says, My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door, and my heart yearned for him. She has a change of heart. I, roused, I rose to, to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh and fingers liquid myrrh. That was what he had left behind on the door because he had all this good-smelling stuff on him and what have you. And it says, I, at my, my heart leaped up when I spoke, uh, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. So here he's coming, he's wanting to spend some time, some fellowship time with his wife. She's not, she's just not interested, she, you know, at that, at that moment. But because of his kindness, he turns and he, he walks away. And because he didn't force the issue, she becomes aroused, desires him. And when she goes to open the door, he's gone. Now, he's not punishing her. He's just, he's being gracious to her, okay? And so here, here are some points. When, when, you, when you enter into a conflict in marriage, and you will, uh, how, should you, how should you handle it? Well, first of all, don't react. Don't get hurt and offended at the actions of the other person. Don't allow yourself to do that. It's a choice. It really is a choice on our part. We can choose not to be offended. Uh, don't make it personal. Uh, when we react to a, a conflict, the conflict just escalates. It just gets worse and worse. It takes two people to fight. You know, if one person decides they're not going to fight, there's not going to be any fight. Okay? So just choose not to react. Rather, respond to God. Let God chasten the offender. In verse 7, it says... Here, um, the watchmen who went about the city found me, and they struck me, and they wounded me. The keepers of the walls took my veil away from me. What is that all about? It's just that God, the, the husband didn't punish her. He, he went off, and he, he, took, he, he, he pursued other uh, uh, opportunities, not with other people, but with, he went to his garden, what have you, and he just let God deal with her. And God, this is a picture of God chastening her. He will chasten us. And, uh, and so respond to God. Let him have the opportunity to chasten your spouse if that in, is, was necessary, if that's necessary. Because of his kindness, uh, he is elevated in her eyes. You find verses 8. I'm not going to read through these, but verses 8 through the end of chapter 5, she starts talking about Solomon and what a what a fantastic guy he is and just she starts just praising him because of his kindness because he didn't force himself upon her and then you see uh in chapter 6 verses 1 through 3 a resolution she says the the the, the daughters of Jerusalem they ask where has your love, beloved gone and the custom of that day is your, if your wife displeased you, you put her away. Now Solomon wasn't doing that. He wasn't seeking to punish her at all. 
She knows where Solomon is. He's not left her. She knows exactly where he is. And she says in verse 3, I am my beloved's and he is mine. She resolves to seek his forgiveness because she is committed to him. And then there's communication in verses 4 and 5. I want you to see a, a video uh, just kind of talking about communication and sometimes how difficult it can be in marriage. Hey, listen, sometimes we don't make sense to each other in marriage. We really don't. We're coming from two different ways of looking at things and what have you. And, you know, sometimes for men, it's real simple. We, we just, you know, let's just fix it. And it's not always that simple or that easy, you know, uh, with women and what have you. They, they, they want us to hear them out and what have you. That's just kind of an interesting way of looking at it. But anyways, there, there's communication here in verse, verses 4 and 5. And we're going we're gonna to wrap this thing up here. It says in verse 4, it says here, your neck, am I right? Nope, I'm wrong. <laughs> Where am I? Okay. Uh, verse, verse, okay. It says, oh, my love, you are as beautiful as Terza, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn your eyes away from me, for they have overcome me. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Say, whoa, whoa, what are you talking about here? What's going on? Listen, she's come to seek his forgiveness, right? He doesn't attack her. He doesn't ignore her. He doesn't try to defend himself. You know, before she even has a chance to speak to him and tell her, he, he tells her how beautiful she is. And so, uh, and, and the goal, listen, is always to win the person, not the argument. That's where we get into problems a lot of times in marriage. Got to win that argument. No, got to win the person. Win the person. There's reconciliation in verse 11. Uh, they talk about their, their union as a as an orchard, as blossoms, as a vine. She's asking him, is their, is their vineyard still fruitful? She's seeking reassurance that they are still good in their relationship with one another. And you know what he does? Not only has he forgiven her, he's already forgotten. In verse 12, look at what it says in verse 12. It says, before I was even aware, before I could even get out what was on my mind, my soul, talking about Solomon, had made me as the chariots of my noble people. What does that mean? He seats her in a place of honor. He's already forgiven. He's already forgotten what happened before. And he demonstrates grace to her. In verse 13, it says, Return, return, O Shulamite, return, return that we may look upon you. What would you see in the Shulamite as if as it were the dance of two camps? What's happening here is they, they just begin to fall toward each other. They begin to dance. And the next thing you see, they're going off and spending time with each other again, making up, having fun. The last thing I want to talk about is commitment. Turn to chapter 8. And I'm going to hit this really quick. Commitment that a love that lasts, 
What should our perspective of commitment be in marriage? First of all, with, in verse 5, with Solomon, it was providential. His marriage was providential. That's the way he expressed it. He says here in verse 5, he says, uh, Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? I awakened you under the apple tree. There your mother brought you forth. There she who bore you brought you forth. And what he's basically saying is that she was born for him. That uh, she was God's provision for him. That God had, had, uh, had a plan to bring them together. And it was providential. Secondly, it is possessive in a good sense. It says over here in verse 6, it says, Set me as a seal upon your heart. A seal is a mark of ownership. And as his wife, she now belonged to him and vice versa. He belonged to her. Also, commitment or love that lasts is permanent. Verse 6, it says, For love is as strong as death. Hey, listen, there isn't anything stronger than death. Death is never gives up. Death is unyielding. And love is to be as unyielding as death. Another thing is that it is patterned after God. Look at verse 6c where it says, A jealousy uh, as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. And and in another place it talks about the flame of God or flame of Jehovah. And what it's talking about is that, that, that their love resembles God's love. God's love is intense like the brightness of a burning flame. And then their commitment also is persevering. Verse 7a says, Many waters cannot quench love. True love is unquenchable. True love, nothing quenches the fire of God in our lives. And lastly, it is precious. Look at 7b where it says, Nor can the floods drown it out. If a man who gives for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. And what she's saying is this, true love cannot be purchased. It must be given away, and it is priceless. Love can be kind of like a poker game, in a sense. Guys and gals, you've got five cards. Everybody has five cards. And you have to decide which of those cards are you going to let go of and which of those cards are you going to keep? There are some things in your relationship, some things in your life you need to learn to let go of that are not healthy, that will not help you in your relationship. And there are some things you need to hold on to with all with your dear life. Listen, he's talking about marriage being so precious here. It's something that you hold on to very dearly. If you are married, you need to take stock in what you have Don't throw away something priceless for petty insecurities or stupid immaturity. sometimes Sometimes we get worked up about little things. And we talk about, well, just, well, let's just get a divorce. And it's it's just little little things that add up. It's listen, your marriage is priceless. You don't just throw it away. You learn to hold on to that which is most valuable. Now let me end by saying this. 
God expresses his true love for us every day, but mostly on the cross. Romans 5, 8 said, But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to become lovely or become worthy. No, while we were still sinners, Christ died on the cross. He demonstrated his love for us there. His love is intense. His love is unquenchable. His love is unyielding. His love is priceless. Before one can experience this type of love in marriage, we must first experience a true relationship with God. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, I know that there's so much that's been left unsaid, so many things that we could have talked about this morning. But Father, I pray that something of what was said today would help each of us, whether we're single, looking for that day when you'll bring the right person, the right type of person into our life, or whether we are, are married and, and enjoying our marriage with great intimacy, or whether we are married and struggling, regardless of where we are, Father, I pray that you've had a word of encouragement for us today. And help us to realize, Father, that before the man gets the woman, before that can really be healthy, the man has to first have God, and the woman has to first have God. 